We're in Job chapter 25. Father, bless our Bible study tonight. Lord, may your word go through us, clean, cleanse us, Lord, as we go through, through it. We pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Once there was a journalist assigned to the Jerusalem Bureau. She rented a flat that overlooked the Wailing Wall of Jerusalem. And every day as she looked down at the Wailing Wall, she noticed the same old Jewish fellow. He would go to the wall and he would pray vigorously. Well, this journalist could smell a story. And so one day she, she met him and she asked him, you come to this wall every day to pray. How long have you been doing this and what do you pray about? The man replied, well, I've been coming to the Wailing Wall every day for 25 years. In the morning, I pray for world peace. I go home, have a cup of tea, and then I come back at night and I pray for the eradication of disease. Well, the journalist was amazed. Boy, how does it feel to come to this place every day for two and a half decades and pray? <laughs> the old man said sadly, like I'm praying to a wall. Well, that's about how Job felt in relationship to his prayers. Job has been asking why he's been struck by this calamity, but God doesn't answer. Job felt like someone who was talking to the proverbial telephone pole. Job had asked to know why, and God had stayed silent. Job was demanding to know why, but God wouldn't say. Job was screaming to know why, but God remained silent. Job was pounding his fist and daring God to tell him why, but God remained silent. It was like Job was praying to a wall, but God was watching, and God was listening, and God was preparing to respond to Job. In fact, God will pay Job a visit soon enough. But when God is ready, not when Job says jump, in the meantime, Job struggles in silence. And here's the problem when the person you're talking to chooses to stay silent. You can draw the wrong conclusions. You know, when my wife doesn't speak to me, I jump to all kinds of conclusions. I assume, oh no, what have I done? If my son doesn't speak to me, I think, oh no, what has he done? Silences are difficult to interpret. You can draw the wrong conclusions. Which reminds me of Earl and Diane. They went to the county fair one day and Earl wanted to ride the stunt plane that was there at the fair. You could ride the stunt plane for $50. Earl said to his wife, said, Honey, I really want to ride that stunt plane. Diane replied, Earl, you know money's tight. $50 is $50. Well, this went on for years. Every, every year they would go back to the fair and Diane would always answer him, $50 is $50. Well, one year, Earl, he asked Diane, he said, Honey, he said, I'm 75 years old. If I don't go up in that stunt plane soon, I won't have a chance. Earl, $50 is $50. Well, the stunt plane pilot, he overheard the conversation. And so he offered them a deal. He said, If you can remain silent on this flight the whole time, there will be no charge for the flight. But if I hear one squeal from either one of you, it's going to cost you $50. Well, 
Well, the pilot, he tried every twist and turn he could possibly remember. Anything he could do to try to get this couple to scream, to say a word, but not a peep. Well, after landing, he told Earl, he said, wow, he said, I was surprised. How did you stay quiet? How did you do it? And Earl said, well, it wasn't easy. I almost screamed when Diane fell out of the plane. But you know, $50 is $50. (laughs) You know, you can draw false conclusions from someone else's silence. And Job is the classic example. He concluded that God saw him as his enemy. He accused God of having wronged him. He felt that God had abandoned him. Sadly, tonight, we're going to watch Job grope a while longer in his darkness and in his silence. Remember, the book of Job was probably the first biblical book penned. That means that Job is without a Bible. That means that Job never read the first two chapters of the book of Job. And yet, Job is trying his best to make some kind of sense out of his mess. Well, Tonight, we're in chapter 25. It's Bildad's turn to speak. He talks for just six verses, and then for the next six chapters, Job vents his pain and his frustration. Verse 1, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him, meaning God. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does he light his light not rise? In other words, God lights the world for everyone. Who doesn't benefit from his grace, he asked Job. How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? God, God lights the world. Job, you're a mere mortal. Job, you're a human being. God is divine. God is great. So, Job, who do you think you are to want to carry on a conversation with God? He says, if even the moon does not shine, And the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm. The moon shines a light into the dark night. The stars are suns that light up deep space. And yet God is not really impressed with the moon or the stars. They both pale in comparison to God's infinite glory. The Almighty is greater than any part of His creation. And compared to the radiance of the stars, man is a maggot. I got a picture. Man is a maggot. Man is just a worm. Look at yourself in the mirror and say, Hi, maggot. Compared to God's glory, we're a maggot. We're a worm. Why would God give to Job the time of day? Obviously, hidden from Bildad was God's love for Job. And hidden from Bildad was the exalted position that God had given to man after his creation. Well, it's interesting that this is Bildad's third and final speech to Job. The third counselor, Zophar, he doesn't have a third turn. He apparently remained quiet after this. If Zophar has made, did make a final speech, it wasn't recorded. It's interesting, though, that in the end, None of the three men could pin a sin on Job. Oh, they hurled all kinds of accusations against him, but like jello thrown up on a wall, none of their charges ever stuck. Job remained innocent. 
Chapter 26, Job responds. He answers and says, How have you helped him who is without power? In other words, you've, you've done me no good. You really haven't helped me much at all. How have you saved the arm that has no strength? I mean, I'm down and you've done nothing for me. How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words? And whose spirit came from you? You see, Job had disagreed with their counsel. They were of no help to him at all. Their sound advice was nothing to him but dribble. It's interesting now, in chapter 26, Job is going to compare the wisdom that God demonstrated in creation with the wisdom of his counselors. In fact, Job 26 is a very, very provocative chapter. For in this chapter, we glean some details of the creation that we find nowhere else. Keep in mind, the book of Job was the first Bible book written. It was authored by Moses probably before he compiled Genesis. Its contents predate Moses' day. Job is an old book, and it records some very cryptic and some very intriguing details about the creation that you find nowhere else in the Scripture. And we get them right here in chapter 25, uh, 26, verse 5. The dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Notice that. Where did the dead tremble? Under the waters and inhabiting the waters. Now, in the Old Testament, the abode of the dead was known as Sheol. The Greek term or the New Testament term is Hades. Today, Hades is, the, is inhabited by the spirits of unbelievers. And Sheol or Hades is a frightful place. Understand that. It's also called the bottomless pit. It's where the worm, you know, doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. Understand, people don't party in Hades. People in Hades tremble. But notice where Hades is located. Here we're told, under the waters. Throughout the Bible, the sea has evil connotations. And here we learn why. Because the sea borders up and mingles with hell. In Revelation 13, the beast or the Antichrist is seen coming out of the sea. In Revelation 9, demons arise from the sea at the mouth of the Euphrates that destroy a third of mankind. Remember when the storm kicked up on the Sea of Galilee. It tried to drown Jesus. And Jesus, he rebuked the sea. Jesus spoke to the sea as if you would speak to a demon. In Micah 7, we're told that our sins are buried, where? In the deepest parts of the sea. And finally, in the new earth, in the ultimate perfection, the ultimate recreation of God, guess what's not there in the new earth? There is no sea. Throughout the Scriptures, the sea has a seamy, sinister reputation. In Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus predicted His death and resurrection, He said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In the fish's belly, Jonah was at the bottom of the sea, or at the heart or the center of the earth. Likewise, when Jesus died, He went to Sheol, 
where there he preached to those held captive. Obviously, Sheol or Hades is not some Atlantis, some literal underwater world. That's not what I'm suggesting. Sheol exists in a spiritual dimension, another dimension, another realm. And yet apparently the coordinates of Sheol somehow overlap with the sea. Evidently the spirit world is also underwater, under the seas, at the heart of the earth. Now I have a serious book in my library. It's entitled The Bible and the Bermuda Triangle. In it, it theorizes the existence of dimensional warps or corridors between the physical and spiritual realms that rise up out of the sea. Remember, Jesus spoke of the gates of hell, entranceways into hell. These could be actual areas on an oceanic map where the spiritual and physical worlds mingle and overlap. It's interesting that the earth's deepest oceans are the Puerto Rican Trench in the Caribbean, a.k.a. the Bermuda Triangle, and the Marianas Trench off the coast of Guam in the South Pacific. Another name, the Devil's Triangle. Both areas are infamous for their mysterious supernatural phenomena that occur in these waters. Is it possible that some of the strange reports might be the result of demonic activity occurring around the gates of hell. This is a provocative chapter. There could be a lot of truth to that. Job's point, though, is this. All evil trembles at God's presence. Even Sheol trembles at God's presence. Verse 6, Sheol is naked before him, and destruction has no covering. Revelation 9 names the angel of the bottomless pit, the king of hell, He is called Abaddon or destruction. Here Job is saying that even the king of hell trembles before God. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Now now remember, these are the words of a man living 4,000 years ago. A man who never saw a telescope, let alone looked through one. How does he know that the earth is suspended over empty space? And yet his description here of the cosmos fits very nicely in any of today's textbooks on astronomy. In fact, a modern astronomer would be hard-pressed to come up with a better explanation of the cosmos than what we find right here, that God hangs the earth on nothing. That's pretty accurate. Compare that now, compare the accuracy of Job's description with the creation myths of the ancient cultures. When you do, it's obvious that Job's insights were divinely inspired. The Egyptians, for example, they said that there was this egg that existed in this primeval sea. It hatched the sun god who had four sons. And through their rivalries with each other, the world was created. That was the Egyptians. The Greeks said that the earth was held up by the arms of a giant named Atlas. The Hindus taught that the earth rested on the back of three elephants which stood on the shell of a tortoise that swam along in a primeval ocean. In contrast, Job's statements are astonishingly accurate scientifically and astronomically. He says that God hung the earth on nothing. Here's another interesting thought before we leave verse 7. 
we're told, he stretches out the north over empty space. In other words, God gave to the earth a northward projecting axis that points toward the north star. This gives the earth its orientation in the starscape. Thus, anywhere on our planet, north becomes up or above, whereas south becomes down or below. It's interesting, Psalm 75 suggests that God's throne is in heaven and that heaven is in the north. It says, exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. So where does God live? By process of elimination there, he doesn't live in the east or west or south. Obviously, God lives in the north. Where is heaven? Heaven is in the north. By living in the north, by heaven being in the north, it's implied that God resides there. And I want to clarify this. I'm not suggesting that God is a Yankee. When I say that heaven is in the north, God forbid that God would be a Yankee. I mean, everybody knows that God is a southern gentleman. In fact, if we get to heaven and God says, Hi, you guys, I'm going to be really disappointed. You know, just as hell is in a parallel dimension at the earth's center, heaven could also be in a parallel realm Above us, situated in the north, situated above us. Is this why all compasses point north? Could they be pointing us all back to heaven, back to God? Verse 8 tells us, God binds up the water in His thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. You remember when we studied, remember Job was written a long, long time ago, back as close to the flood as we can get. And when we studied the pre-flood era, we noted evidence that before the deluge, the earth was surrounded by a global vapor canopy. Thick clouds shrouded the earth and shielded the earth from the sun's harmful radiation. This allowed people to live long lives. This was why Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. And we have the other long lives back in Genesis. It also turned the antediluvian world into a tropical paradise. God's thick clouds, as Job called them, may be a reference to that pre-flood atmosphere. He goes on and he says, God covers the face of His throne and spreads His cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Here's another amazingly accurate insight for a man living 4,000 years ago. The ancients thought that the world was flat. But Job says that God drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters. Job understood that the earth was a sphere. You know, the Bible taught the earth was round millenniums before Christopher Columbus discovered the new world. It's another proof of the Bible's supernatural origin. He goes on, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power And by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. Not only do the dead in Sheol tremble before God, but apparently so does heaven. Notice he says, by his spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. And here's where it really gets provocative. 
Here's another creation detail. God's Spirit, we're told, adorned the heavens. Remember Genesis 1 verse 2. That's the first place where the Holy Spirit appears, right there in the beginning. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And who was there? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. Boom, and there was light. Study this picture now. Think it through. The earth is without form and void. Isaiah 45, verse 18. Look it up later. Isaiah 45, verse 18 says that God made nothing that was without form and void. What God made had form. It had content and substance. God made nothing without form and void. Perhaps it became that way when Satan fell. So here we have the earth. It's covered with this evil sea. And the Spirit is now brooding over the waters. God is about to initiate His recreation in these seven days of, of creation. When according to Job, suddenly His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. The devil is in the stormy waters. The devil is in the waters. The, the sea serpent, the dragon as he's called in Revelation, is in the sea. And the dragon is in the sea trying to stop God's creative work when suddenly the Spirit of God pierces him and causes him to flee. Then God says, light, and there was light. It's interesting. Psalm 89, verses 9 and 10 paints the same picture of creation, that it was a battle, that creation was actually a battle between God and the sea serpent. There we're told that he breaks Rahab, the proud Leviathan, again the dragon, into pieces. Did you know there are ancient tales from the Canaanites and from the Babylonians and even from the American Indians that talk of the Creator slaying a sea serpent at creation and then using the pieces of that sea serpent as the stuffing or the stuff for his creation, as the as the elements for his creation. These are some bizarre myths, but they may just have a kernel of truth. Here we know from Job that his spirit adorned the heavens by piercing the serpent. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. Isn't that the truth? I mean, all the knowledge from all the brightest minds in every field of study... They're just the edges of God's ways. Man's knowledge of the universe is so infantile compared to the mind of God that it's romper room chatter. It's nursery rhymes in contrast to the mysteries of God. The basic building blocks of tomorrow's science are still today's secrets. Indeed, these are the mere edges of His ways. And how small a whisper we hear of Him. But the thunder of His power who can understand? The most brilliant theologian knows but a faint whisper compared to the thunder of who God truly is. Chapter 27. Moreover, Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my justice and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. 
In other words, Job says, I will never lie. And that's why he's never said that his calamity was caused by his sin. Because he, he affirms that that's not true. That he's innocent. He continues, far be it from me that I should say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. Job is going to cling to his innocence until the day he dies. May my enemy be like the wicked, and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. Now Job's friends have accused him of wickedness. Here he turns the tables and he hopes that God will treat them like wicked men. They need to be judged after what, he's put, after what they've put him through. He says, for what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he may gain much, if God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? And Job is saying, hey, what do I have to gain by being a hypocrite? By lying about this. I'm telling you the truth. You know, he'll never admit that he sinned, that his sin has caused his calamity because his confession would be untrue. He says, I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they, they've wanted to teach Job about God. But they're the ones that are in need of the truth. And Job wants to now teach them. The rest of chapter 27 takes a strange twist. Job actually contradicts what he said back in chapter 24. That God doesn't always charge the wicked with wrong. That criminals do often get away with their crimes. He, he recants that here in chapter 27. Here's what I think is going on. Like many human beings, Job is struggling with his theology. Have you ever struggled with your theology? Have you ever struggled with what you believe? We don't like to admit it, but we all go through it, don't we? Well, we struggle sometimes. Job here is struggling with his theology. He knows that life is unfair. He knows that circumstances are not always just. But he wishes they were. He wishes that good was always rewarded and, and bad was always punished. But he knows they're not. In fact, it would be much easier for Job and for you and I if the good man always got the trophy and if the evil man was always sent to jail. You know, if that were the case, everyone would know right where they stood with God at all times. But faith would never be required, would it? Grace would never factor into the equation either. You see, the bothersome truth that life doesn't always make sense is what makes life so difficult to navigate. God would never score well in a high school literature class. Because he leaves too many incomplete sentences. He leaves too many fragments in the story of our lives. Remember, the sentences don't always get finished until we get to heaven. That's where we get the rest of the story. Well, in the rest of the chapter, Job says that God does judge the wicked. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then? Do you behave with complete nonsense? Notice sin is nonsense when you know it brings God's judgment. Now, when you go out and sin deliberately, that's just plain nonsense. God is going to judge sin. 
verse 13, this is the portion of a wicked man with God. And so he now goes on to the next few verses, and I'll summarize a little bit. He describes how God treats the wicked. They die violently while their families starve. Their enemies loot their possessions. Their housing is taken away from them. Terror overtakes them. He sweeps them away with a strong wind, with a hurricane. He's mocked by men. This is what happens to the wicked man. And this is the way that life should work in the ideal world. I mean, we want the wicked man to be judged. We, we want the righteous man to be rewarded. This is how life should work, but this is not how Job's life has worked. This is not what has happened to him. He's innocent, and yet he's still suffered. Again, Job is struggling with his theology. He wants to believe in what we've called that kindergarten theology. But his life experiences have not supported those conclusions. And so Job knows that there must be more. Job knows that he needs to dig deep. He needs to dig deeper to find the answers that he seeks. And it causes him to observe that all God's treasures are discovered through digging and through exploration. He realizes that what's true spiritually is also true naturally. That if God has buried in the earth items of great value, why wouldn't He bury wisdom and insight so that they can only be discovered through mining for truth? Thus, in chapter 28, Job highlights man's capacity and curiosity for exploration. He says, surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of death. He breaks open a shaft away from people in places forgotten by feet. They hang far away from men. They swing to and fro. They sink these deep shafts way down into the earth to pull out these precious gems. Silver, gold, iron are valuable. They're precious commodities. But they don't just fall into our lap. We have to go get them. We have to seek for them and dig for them. In fact, we search in dark places. We venture to faraway locations. We dig deep and we sink shafts into the earth to get out what's precious. Likewise, superficial understandings of things. How life appears at times may not lead us to the truth. Instead, we too, to get that spiritual truth, may have to dig deeper. He says, as for the earth, when it comes from it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the source of sapphires, and it contains gold dust. He's noticing that a field of wheat, it seems docile and harmless. But if you dig below that field of wheat deep enough, you'll find a boiling molten fire brewing in the center of the earth, forging jewels in its furnace. Diamonds are being formed below that field of wheat. You know, you know there's, there's much to be gained by going beyond just a prima facie understanding of a matter. You understand what that means? The phrase prima facie? It's Latin for first sight. Or the obvious meaning, the first conclusion. 
Because sometimes we have to go beyond the prima facie meaning. We have to look at it deeper. We have to take a second look at something before we truly understand it. And this is often true in our Bible study. You know, a good Bible study will mine the Scriptures for those spiritual nuggets, those hidden nuggets. You know, sometimes there's an insight just below the surface, and if we go get it, it becomes a rich treasure. Verse 7, that path no bird knows. Now, you know, people are mining deep into the uh, earth. No bird knows this path, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The falcon was renowned for its vision. But, but in essence, man digs in places that the falcon has never seen. The proud lions have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling. What is hidden, he brings forth to light. But where can wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Now, mankind's exploration of nature is prolific. But where do we dig for wisdom, Job asks. He says, man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Wisdom is not found in nature. That's a problem. Wisdom is the product of supernatural forces. Only God can give wisdom. He says, the deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No amount of money can buy wisdom. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Again, the source of wisdom is hidden from men and from falcons, especially on NFL draft day. Play calling and those kinds of... Falcons are notoriously stupid birds. Destruction and death say, we have not heard a report about it with our ears. Death hears about wisdom, but neither death or destruction produce wisdom. Now chapter 28 also illustrates the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You know, in Job's day and in our day, man has great know-how. Job says that men mine silver and they refine gold, but the problem is they lack wisdom. Today, we split atoms, and we put men on the moon. But, oh boy, we lack wisdom too, don't we? We can't solve the social ills like teen pregnancy and like drug abuse and like racial prejudice. We also lack wisdom. Sadly, even breakthroughs, scientific breakthroughs can backfire. Technology has good and evil uses. Science can create new ways to cause destruction. That's why Job says death hears of wisdom but it doesn't possess it. Knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Wisdom is the ability to use those facts for our good and for God's glory. And wisdom, my friend, comes only from God. Verse 23 tells us, 
God understands its way and He knows its place, for He looks to the ends of the earth and He sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion out the waters by measure. And God isn't limited to our superficial view. He sees below the appearance of nature. He understands the reality of life. I mean, He weighs the waters of the oceans. He establishes a weight for the wind. God looks below the surface. He understands the reality of things. Here's a great quote. I have a point of view. You have a point of view. God has view. I have a point of view. You have a point of view. But God has view. Our view of reality is always colored by our perspective. But God sees life always as it truly is. And this is why God alone is the author of truth and ultimate reality. Verse 26, when he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it indeed. He searched it out. And to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Boy, Job comes to the same conclusion as Solomon, doesn't he? That real wisdom is found by reverencing and respecting the Lord. True wisdom is found in the fear of God. Chapter 29. Job further continued his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months past as in the days when God watched over me. The implication, though, is that God is no longer watching over him. That God has neglected and rejected Job. That's not true. We know that. That's how Job feels. Job is reflecting back now on the good old days when all was warm and well in his life. He says, when God's lamp shone upon my head and when his light, in his light, I walked through darkness just as I was in the days of my prime. He's probably thinking when he was 50. When the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me. I mean, he's thinking back on these good old days, and I'm sure he's got tears in his eyes because there's emotion in these memories here. He's thinking back of the time when his kids were around him, when he was in his prime, when life was well, when my steps were bathed with cream and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. Oh, what a picture of ease and prosperity. Oh, when my steps were bathed with cream, when the rivers poured out oil. When I went out to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, remember there was a time when Job was a leader in the community. He was one of the city elders. Job was like E.F. Hutton. When he talked, people listened. Job describes the respect that he received. Verse 8, the young men saw me and hid, and the aged arose and stood. People stood up when I walked in the room, men older than me. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed. And their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. Here's another expression we use that originated from the Bible. And here's why Job was so respected. We go on and read. He delivered the poor. He took care of the fatherless, the helpless, the widow, the blind, the lame. He even broke the wicked. Verse 14 sums up Job's career. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. And notice Job's retirement plan in verse 18. 
Then I said, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the sand. In essence, I'm ready to grow old gracefully, Job says. I had this nest egg laid up for me. I had this wonderful retirement plan. It was all in place when all of a sudden God comes along and upsets my apple cart. You know, Job reminds me of the man who works a lifetime to build a retirement for he and his wife only to find out within weeks of quitting that he has cancer. Or worse, that his wife has cancer. Boy, God has his ways of reminding his people that this world is not our home, doesn't he? He doesn't want us getting too content in the here and now. He wants us looking and longing for eternity. Just ask Job about that. Well, In verse 21, Job recalls how men were awed by his counsel. That Job always had the final word. Verse 25, I chose the way for them and set as chief. But that was then. Whether days ago or months ago, we're not sure. But that was then. I know for Job it seemed like decades ago. Chapter 30 is now. But now they mock at me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. I mean, I'm getting mocked by kids of men I wouldn't let watch my sheep. My sheep dogs were more reliable than them. Now their kids are mocking me. In verses 2 through 8, he describes the worthless men who make fun of him. Verse 9, and now I am their taunting song. Yes, I am their byword. In other words, everybody's telling Job jokes. Job has become, become the butt of all the jokes in us. They abhor me. They keep far from me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Imagine that. Because God has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me, they have cast off restraint before me. Job continues to describe the torment he's endured. Verse 13, they promote my calamity. Verse 16, my soul is poured out. Days of, of affliction take hold of me. Verse 17, gnawing pains take no rest. Verse 18, by great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. Here's verses 18 and 19 in the New Living Translation. It, it, I think it says it in a, a, more, a little bit more graphic way. It says, with a strong hand, God, God grabs my shirt. He grips me by the collar of my coat. He has thrown me into the mud. Hey, Job is accusing God of grabbing him by the shirt and throwing him out of his own house, throwing him into the mud puddle. Reminds me of what Rodney Dangerfield once said. The other day, the dog wanted to go to the door, started barking. I went over and opened it. The dog didn't want to go out. He wanted me to go out. But like Rodney, Job got no respect. In verse 20, Job, like that Jewish man, who was praying at the wailing wall. Remember him? Job feels like he's praying to a wall. He says, I cried out to you, but you do not answer me. Job pours his heart out to God, while God is as silent as a stone. You know, as terrible as Job's suffering was, it would have been tolerable if God had just given him 
an explanation. You know, I found that the best pain reliever by far isn't Tylenol or Demerol. It's an explanation. If we know why something's happened, we tend to rise to the occasion. But when we get no explanation, boy, it's hard. It's like going to the doctor to get a shot. I hate shots. But if I'm told the reason for the shot, I can accept it. I can endure it. I might even be thankful for it. But if I'm given a series of shots without being told the reason they're being given, I'm not going to be as tolerant. In fact, I'm going to get downright ugly and upset. I'm going to pound my fist down on the counter, and I'm going to demand to know why. And that's what Job begins to do. He begins to pound his fist. And in chapter 30 and 31, his attitude begins to deteriorate. Job makes statements that he's later going to regret. He launches verbal salvos at God and about God that are way out of line. Verse 20 tells us, I stand up and you regard me, but you have become cruel to me, God. With the strength of your hand you oppose me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride on it. You spoil my success, for I know that you will bring me to death into the house appointed for all living. Notice what Job is accusing God of. He is accusing the gracious God in heaven of cruelty. He calls God a murderer. He accuses God of trying to kill him. Well, as we've said before, in asking why, Job lost his way. If you don't hear anything else tonight, I want you to, I want you to hear this. Pain has a peculiar way of distorting our perspective, even our theology. Physical and emotional pain scrambles our thoughts and clouds our minds. This is why we should never hold a sufferer to what they say while they're in the midst of great pain. You know, if someone's suffering, just let them air it out. It's probably the pain that's talking, not your friend. Don Baker, he writes this, Pain speaks a strange language. It plays funny tricks on us. It makes us think things, say things, even believe things that are not true. When pain bores its way through human flesh and into the human spirit and just sits there and hurts and hurts, the mind becomes clouded and the brain thinks strange thoughts like God is dead or he's gone fishing or he just doesn't care. Sadly, Job's severe pain is starting to color his perspective in this way. Verse 24, Surely he would not stretch out his hand against a heap of ruins himself. If they cry out when he destroys it, have I not wept for him who was in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? But when I looked for good, evil came to me. And when I waited for light, then came darkness. In other words, God has let me down. Job's become bitter. My heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning, but not in the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin grows black and falls from me. My bones burn with fever. I mean, disease has racked his physical body. Job sums up his condition in verse 31. My heart is tuned to mourning. And my flute to the voice of those who weep. Job says, I'm singing the blues. Remember since chapter 27, Job has been sorting out his theology. 
Yes, God judges the wicked, but I'm not wicked. I know I'm innocent, Job says, and I'm digging deeper. There's got to be another explanation here for my calamity, and yet God refuses to tell me. And in chapter 31, he returns to what he knows for sure, his innocence. Verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? And here Job becomes a tremendous example for every man that's here tonight. Guys, sexual sin begins in the head long before it ends in the bed. The key to resisting temptation is controlling your thoughts. And the gateway to the mind is what? It's your eyes. When it comes to sex, men are visually stimulated. This is why we have to guard our eyes. Notice this. Job made a deal with his eyes. He made a covenant with his eyes. He promised his eyes that he would never steer them in a lustful direction. Every man in this room tonight needs to make this kind of covenant with his eyes. Have you promised your eyes that you would never steer them in a lustful direction? Every man in this room has got to establish boundaries and curfews and time constraints and disciplines for his eyes. Allow your eyes free access to Rome and you are headed for shipwreck. 70% of television shows feature sexual content. 20% of adults in America view some form of pornography every week. And why is that? It's because pornography is just one click away for us all. Eyes are like stomachs. To stay in shape, you don't feed a stomach whatever is in the refrigerator. I'm learning this. You don't just go into the refrigerator and pull anything that's in there out and put it in your stomach if you want to stay in shape. You choose appropriate foods. You take control of this area of your life. And likewise, you don't feed your eyes whatever happens to be on the cable. Just because it's on television doesn't mean it's appropriate. Just because you've got the, the block on there. You're, you're blocking certain things, so... so it, I've got the block on there. Anything else is free game for me. Not necessarily. Make a covenant with your eyes. Don't feed your eyes whatever ends up on the tube. Make a covenant. Create a good eye menu. Do you have a good eye menu? You know, if you never look, you'll never lust. Like Job, cut the sin off at the source. Make a covenant with your eyes. That you should never look upon a young woman. Verse 2. For what is the allotment of God from above. And the inheritance of the Almighty from on high. Is it not destruction for the wicked. And disaster for the workers of iniquity. Does he not see my ways. And count all my steps. If I have walked with falsehood. Or if my foot has hastened to deceit. Let me be weighed on honest scales. That God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way, or my heart walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. Job is saying, if I have sinned in any way, let me reap its consequences. You see, Job is going to do all he can here to clean out the closets. 
He's going to take a brutal personal inventory of his heart. He's going to go through his personal life, in his social life, in his business life. And if there's any sin here that he's forgotten and that he's overlooked, he's going to dig it up and take responsibility for it. He says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her. For that would be wickedness, yes. It would be iniquity, deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all of my increase. Job is saying, if I've been unfaithful to my wife, I deserve a big alimony payment. I deserve for her to deplete all my increase, you know. I failed to live up to my vows. So let her have my increase. If I have despised the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the one, the same one fashion us in the womb? In other words, Job sees that he's no better than his servants. That all men are created equal. That he has no right to mistreat his servants. Boy, pay attention to these verses. Here the Bible definitely sows the seeds that would later oppose slavery. The Bible wasn't for slavery. It was against it. Here Job affirms that all men are created equal and should be treated equally. Job continues the litany of sins that he could have committed if he mistreated the poor or the widow or the fatherless or the homeless. Let judgment come upon me, he says. Notice verse 21. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, when I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be torn from the socket. I'll just get one of those Tommy John surgeries and I'll never throw a fastball again. I'll just accept it if that's what happens. For destruction from God is a terror to me. And because of his magnificence, I could not endure. Job hasn't committed any of these sins because he fears God. If he had, God would have judged him. Job continues, if he worships gold or if he worships the sun or moon, verse 28, it would be an iniquity worthy of judgment, for I would have denied God who is above. If he rejoices in his enemy's destruction or if he doesn't open his doors to the stranger or the traveler, he's also willing to accept what's coming to him. Verse 33, if I have covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families so that I kept silence and did not go out of the door. In other words, in all of these sins and indiscretions, if Job is guilty, he's willing to embrace his punishment. But that's not his dilemma. He's already suffered severely, and he's not guilty. Verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. Job wants to know why his calamity has come upon him. He wants a reason. He wants an explanation. He wants a written brief from God. Hey, if God is against him, if God is his prosecutor, then God needs to serve up the proper paperwork, and Job needs to know what it is he's done wrong. He says, surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. At this point, if Job got his explanation, he would be so elated, he would treat it as a trophy, as a crown. 
Here's one more round of introspection. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. Job is saying, if I'm guilty of some unethical business practice, may thistles and weeds grow in my fields instead of wheat and barley. Verse 40 closes the section. The words of Job are ended. And in chapter 32, another man takes the stage. His name is who? 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 Elihu. That's who. Job needs a reminder of who God is. And asking why he's lost his way. Job's gotten so preoccupied with why that he's forgotten who. And Elihu is going to take the next few chapters and he's going to reacquaint Job with God's greatness and God's glory. And he is going to prepare Job for chapter 38, which is the appearance of God. He's been wanting to talk to God. God's going to come and have a talk with Job. But Elihu is going to prepare him. Father, thank you for your word tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to teach us as we move through the Scriptures. Bless us tonight and this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.